attentive to bees and beetles in the bark of trees, and also to bonnets, artists' books, and embroidery. This episode of Victorian Samplings explores relationships between living things and handmade objects. Hello, I'm Vanessa Warren. We begin this ecologically-minded episode with a conversation with Kate Flint about the work of contemporary artist Suze Wolfe. And Hung speaks with Steve Buckridge about the fascinating material history of lace bark. And Natalie Lovetri closes the episode with an interview about bee ecology and embroidery with artist Willow Rector. We've learned a great deal from these guests, and we think you will too. Let's get started. Kate Flint is Provost Professor of Art History and English at the University of Southern California. She is the author of books and articles on 19th century visual and cultural history, including The Victorians and the Visual Imagination, The Transatlantic Indian, and Flash, Photography, Writing, and Surprising Illumination. Her writing on 19th century culture has shaped the studies and research of all the members of the Victorian Samplings team, and so we are very glad to have her join us as a guest. Hello, Kate, and welcome. Hi, Vanessa. It's really a great privilege to be here talking with you. The object that we're talking about today is an artist's book made just a few years ago, one of a series of books by contemporary American artist Suze Wolfe. We'll link our listeners to some images, but can you describe Wolf's Bark Beetle book, Volume 32, titled Obligate Mutualism? Indeed. I mean, this object is book-sized, a little fatter than a normal book. It's about eight and three-quarter inches high, and it's whoa, um, six and three-quarter inches wide, and it's about three inches deep. And what you're looking at initially is like a very rough cast book with two thick front and back covers and a spine. And the front and the back cover are full of little tiny tunnels, little tracery tunnels. They have been chewed. They've been chewed by bark beetles, the same bark beetles that are chewing their way through acre after acre after acre of forest in North America. And on the inside are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight thin slices of wood that are kind of mimicking pages. And what Wolf does with her bark beetle books, of which there are currently 33, there might well be more by the time uh, people are listening to this. What she does is to think how books contain ideas, I would say. So what ideas are we looking at here? We're looking at the idea that trees are being eaten away by beetles. But that paradoxically, there's a kind of beauty and a kind of fascination in this. The, the beetles have created a kind of writing or inscription. And so she binds together these pieces of, of chewed wood with thread, with embroidery floss. Sometimes she uses planks, effectively, slices of wood that have been taken from the insides of diseased trees. And there um, you can start to see the particular shade of sort of mid-indigo blue that has been left by the fungus that the chewing bark beetle brings along with it. So actually these trees are being killed two ways. They're being killed by the tunnels that are formed by the bark beetles, which really stop the flow of the sap up the tree. But they're also being killed by the, the filaments of the fungi, which are in no way benign. They're not forming those nice little um, networks underground through which trees talk to each other. 
um, these are clogging up the works of the tree. It's remarkable how Wolf in her work both documents the engraved kind of troughs left by the beetles, but also the stains left by the fungi. And I would just say, I, I'm so glad to be introduced to this work by you, Kate, that it's it's very visually remarkable, but it also has a very strong tactile appeal, like the shape and the bulk. And, and of course, the design as a book seems to invite holding and touching. Have you had the chance to interact and, and hold any of Sue's Wolf's work? I can't wait to. I mean, my research, like so much of so many people's research, has been so impacted by the pandemic, which has meant that it's been really hard traveling. I'm certainly hoping to go and touch some of these Bark Beetle books and to talk with her in person later this summer. But I think they also work as a reminder that trees are themselves to be touched, that bark is a supremely tactile surface. So Helen Keller, the American writer who had multiple sensory disabilities, she would actually go into a forest and feel trees. And she claimed that she could tell the difference between different trees that she was walking among simply from what the the bark felt like. Kate, this book and other works featuring beetle-inscribed wood by Wolf are remarkable objects in and of themselves. But Wolf's art has been shaping your study of 19th century visual art. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. The book that I'm writing at the moment takes as its kind of key premise that we can look at 19th century paintings of the natural world, whether they are from North America or whether they're from Britain, and see them, yes, in their historical context, see the histories that they represent and try and understand them in their their moment. But I also argue that by looking at the paintings of the past, we can use them to think forward into the future. We can find, we can locate particular trees, for example, in paintings and think not just would that tree still be there in that landscape today, but generically what might happen to that particular tree? Uh, What might happen to the lodgepole pine? What might happen to the elm tree? What might happen to a plane tree and so on. What might happen to the umbrella pines that are all over those paintings in the 19th century of the Roman Campania and that are completely under threat today? And I use contemporary art, and Suze Wolfe's work is a prime example of this, as a kind of an imaginative prod so that we don't just know the facts that because of warming climates and because of droughts, that forests are weakened in ways that they've never been before, and that they're therefore the more vulnerable to to beetle infestations. Um, You get two cycles of bark beetles, for example, chomping their way through trees in a year, whereas you used just to get one because winters kicked in earlier. Uh, You used to get enough cold nights that bark beetles were, many of the larvae were killed off. There aren't a sufficiency of nights where the temperature goes below about minus 10 uh, Fahrenheit where this is going to happen anymore. And so when you're looking at a 19th century painting, I'm inviting you to think, so what's, what's the future? of the apparently insignificant things in this. So I don't just look at tree bark, I look at lichen, I look at dandelions, I look at seaweed, all those things that might be part of a composition, but actually you're really looking at something else that's going on. And what contemporary art can do is to actually make you notice those things that you don't really notice much in paintings and make you think about them. So in the case of Wolf's work, I mean, I argue that, you know, you might notice a tree in a painting, but you're more likely to think, as indeed people did in the uh, 19th century, about its overall shape. 
or perhaps about the shape of its leaves. But you don't really think unless it's a appealing silver birch tree that is white and black and peeling a kind of pale fawn, you probably don't think much about the bark. So I'm saying, no, think about the bark of trees. Think about what we could, by acknowledging the overlooked, make this painting say, and that's going to speak to us today. And, you know, books that in your face present you in a cultural context, in a art gallery, even on a web page online, with something that's quite startling. As I said, um, it's something that is curiously beautiful, but it's also horrific. The thing that, I mean, books, this is a one-off, but books tend to appear in multiples. You could make a work like this over and over and over again from any number hundreds, thousands, millions, billions of dead and dying trees. I hate to take us from the overlooked, Kate, which you're inviting us to pay attention to, to the obvious. But when I look at Suze Wolf's books, Bound in Wood, I can't help but think of of the millions of trees that were pulped in the 19th century to make paper and in the decades since. Does that feature in your work at all? Only very obliquely it hasn't done yet. I mean, it does in explaining why this is an appropriate form for her to be making making art. I think that one has to think about, well, what when we look at 19th century paintings of felled trees, what was the destination for most of those trees? Now, sure, on the East Coast, the destination was sometimes going to be being pulped for for paper, but a lot of paper was still made then of rags. I would say that on the East Coast, when you're often dealing with fallen or with felled hemlock trees, a lot of that bark went straight into the tanning industry, the leather industry. And it's sort of ironic in that hemlock's prime use today is actually paper making for fairly rough paper like wrapping paper and newspaper. But then trees are being used for railroad sleepers, trees are being used for fuel, trees are being used on the West Coast both of the US and of Canada, trees are being used to make make roadways with. And that's true on the, the east as well, really bumpy, bumpy roads. So fell trees have had multiple um, uses over time. And I'm talking there about white settler usage of trees for the most part. Indigenous uses of trees have been multiple and where you get bark used indeed for utilities like roofing huts or for building waterproof canoes, but also for things like making teas, making medicines, dyeing clothes, I mean, dyeing cloths and such like. So it's not that trees haven't been deliberately used by humans for you know, multiple uh, generations, but these are trees, once they are felled, once they've been eaten by the beetles, are not that much use even for pulp, it would seem. It's interesting that some of the national parks where they have huge numbers, lost huge numbers of trees, they're starting to build furniture from them. And I think in Yellowstone, I'm not sure about Yosemite, but certainly in Yellowstone, they are making their new furniture for their lodges and so on from trees that have been killed by the bark beetles. And one of the things that they really like about it is the, the weirdness of the, the blue stain of the, the fungus. A recurring theme in our podcast and in the Larger Crafting Communities Project has been, as you know, collaboration. 
And I can't help but think of Suze Wolf as reluctantly collaborating with both the beetles and the fungi in her work, but also to think of you as a scholar collaborating in a way with Suze Wolf as an artist. And I'm wondering if I could ask you to talk a little bit more about your method and what scholars working on the 19th century might gain from engaging contemporary art as perhaps a guide or an inspiration or a support. Yes, I mean, that's a great question, and I think it's one that points one straight to acknowledging that the imagination is a powerful critical tool, and also that engaging the imagination is something that can prompt us to awareness and action in a way that facts and statistics and the possession of knowledge doesn't necessarily, because it's not exactly that I've got a completely presentist approach that I think that all that matters about the 19th century is that we make it relevant and useful and speak to us today, except that I really want us to think that the particular origins of so much of our climate crisis today lie in 19th century industry. They do lie in the demand and the greed for fossil fuels in the 19th century. And they do lie in what we kind of took for granted then, or what our ancestors took for granted. And even though writers like Ruskin or like George Perkins Marsh were talking about the finite nature of resources and were talking about pollution, I want to give that message, which was developing in the 19th century, its own history. And I feel that by looking at contemporary art and looking, looking at artists who also look backwards in different ways, whether they do it through, um, as Mark Dion does, adopting and playing with Victorian modes of classification and taxonomy, or whether they do it through using Victorian techniques, or whether they are themselves collaborative, like another artist who's working with, with bark and felled trees on the um, East Coast is Jean Shin. And she had a totally fascinating installation at Frederick Church's house at Alana, which was up from May to the the end of 2021, and that I did get to go and <laughs> feel and touch and <laughs> um, because when she she took a hemlock there, and it was a hemlock that Church himself had planted outside Alana, in order to make a gesture towards replacing some of the millions of hemlocks that had been used in the tanning industry. And what Shen had done was that she had covered this in scraps of leather from today's leather industry, surplus stuff from New York clothes manufacturers. But before that, she had barked the tree with a team of helpers from, I think, a local historical society using the same 19th century tools that would have been used to take the bark off, to use it for tanning the leather. And in doing this, she was drawing attention to the long and rather different history of vulnerability of hemlocks on the East Coast. Because if on the West Coast, pine trees especially are vulnerable to the bark beetle, as we see in Wolf's work, on the East Coast, hemlocks are vulnerable to the woolly adelgid beetle, which really sucks sap out of the hemlocks. And so there are dead and dying hemlock trees all over the Alana estate. And indeed, Shin developed a kind of project whereby you can get a little leather label and go and tag a hemlock tree with it if you find a live hemlock tree. So she's labelling the trees in order to kind of celebrate but potentially commemorate them through hanging a little bit of a kind of leather tag on them now. She was inviting people who came to the exhibition 
to go out there and try and find your own hemlock tree, which is another form of collaboration that involves you collaborating with the kind of imaginative idea of, of history. I can't resist bringing a third artist in just to wrap up this conversation, Kate. And I was so excited to learn about Elpida Hadzi Vasilovas. She's a Macedonian-born British artist, and she's been creating some very striking and moving work, which is doing that work of memorialization of trees. She's looking particularly at trees lost to Dutch elm disease in the UK. And I'm just wondering what interests you or attracts you to that work or what we should know about it. She is doing something not dissimilar in a way to, to Wolf, except on a much bigger scale because she's taking the whole dead tree. She is also really fascinated by these bizarre patterns that are created by, in this case, the Dutch elm beetle. And she really fills them up with gold leaf. And so that the tree becomes a sculpture and it also becomes something which is being turned almost into a mythological sort of substance, which then makes you think about Ovid and Metamorphoses and how trees could have both human and glorious characteristics as well. And I think if we consider pine trees and hemlock trees and before them chestnut trees to have been iconic in different ways in North America, that elm trees have been iconic within the British landscape and they're there in so many 19th century paintings. It's hard to look at a 19th century painting of the, the British countryside and not see an elm tree. Think about Constable's paintings in particular. And yet there are very few elms left now. And there were two in existence in Brighton until very recently, and they died just a couple of years back. And one of those so-called twin elm trees is one that this artist has, has worked with. And so she's commemorating it on the spot where it was growing. And she intends this to be part of a whole project linking various sites of elm trees and former elm trees on the, the south coast of, of Britain to make people just stop and think about what had happened, what was there. But it's also a way of saying if something is dead, it doesn't actually have to be kind of useless. It can be turned into an art form. And, you know, that is something that, you know, other artists have done in various ways, whether it's by putting trees into art galleries and making one think about what they might be doing there, or whether it is another installation work by Mark Dion in Seattle, which is a Western hemlock log in a greenhouse and he imported it there. It was already dead. It had fallen down in the storm. But what he is interested in preserving, as though it were in a Victorian greenhouse, um, is all the life that actually a dead tree has in it. And so it grows little ferns and it has all of its insects and it creates its own kind of microcosm. And one of the things he is doing there is kind of following Victorian instructions to budding young girls and boys who are naturalists to go off and find an old tree log and see how many different kinds of life forms you can find within it. Now, I don't know that this is being done in any way with these elm trees. They seem to be being turned more into kind of statues. But doing things with dead trees is very much kind of part of what I'm writing about in this part of the project. And in a way, it's reminding one about the artistic function of dead trees. Because think back to all of those 19th century paintings which take their compositional cues from the picturesque 
and use dead trees. Maybe they've been struck by a thunderstorm and they use them in part to, to frame the picture or they're lying in the foreground and they lead the eye into the picture. And I'm really saying over again, don't just think about trees as compositional devices. Sure, they are that. But live or dead, they also are their own life forms or they've had their own particular histories. I'm tempted now, Kate, to ask you about fallen or felled or lightning struck trees in literature. But instead, I will say thank you so much for your time and for all of the ideas you've so generously shared with us today, Kate. Thank you. It's been terrific. Thank you so much for letting me share them. My name is Anne Hung, and today I am joined by Dr. Steve Buckridge. Steve is a professor of African and Caribbean history at Grand Valley State University. His areas of research are pre-colonial and colonial Africa, Caribbean slavery, gender and sexuality, material culture, dress, and fashion history. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. The object we'll discuss today is a bonnet made of a unique textile called lace bark. What exactly is lace bark? Well, Anne, thank you for the question. First of all, I should highlight that this is a very rare type of textile, sadly, but this is also a forgotten art form. And this is in part because the tree at one time was thought to be extinct. So what exactly is lace bark? As the name implies, it is a form of lace. It's natural lace which is really surprising. I mean, can you imagine lace that grows on a tree? But that's exactly what it is. Lace bark is derived from a tree. It's called the Lagetta, Lagetto tree. And this tree was indigenous to only three places on the planet. Jamaica, the island of Hispaniola, and Cuba. It's found nowhere else. So what slave women would do is that they would cut the bark of the Lagetto tree all right, and then they would take the bark and then they would soak it in water and then they would pull, put their fingers down between the inner and outer bark and pull out the fibers. And once they would pull out the fibers, they would then dry it in the sun, roll it up, dry it again in the sun, and then hang it out to be bleached, uh, you know, to be naturally bleached white. And what you end up having is this piece of lace, natural lace, that looks so much like manufactured lace that in fact you could not tell the difference between lace bark and European manufactured lace. And what's fascinating about lace bark is that this particular type of lace, yes, it was natural lace, but it was used for so many things, all right? It was used to make clothing, of course, but also household accessories from runners for tables, it was used to make doilers, it was used to make curtains, wedding veils, wedding dresses. Anything that manufactured lace was used for, lace bark was used as a substitute because many slaves did not have access to European manufactured lace. That was just beyond them because it was way too expensive. And jumping off that point, could you talk a bit more about the significance of lace bark to communities of enslaved people in the 19th century? What we find happening is that slaves who came from areas of, of Africa where you had the knowledge of bark cloth production brought those ideas with them to the Americas. And so those ideas were nurtured and were maintained within the Caribbean context. So that's first and foremost. What we end up seeing is that especially in the British islands and the British areas, during the days of slavery, slaves received a minimum amount of clothing to sustain them throughout the year. But what we end up seeing is that in the British context on the plantations, women received less clothing than men. And in fact, most slaves received enough fabric that could make two, maybe two suits of outfits for the year, which is not enough to sustain them. And so what some people did to obtain additional clothing was that some slaves stole clothing from their owners. Some women received additional clothing in exchange for sexual favors. Some women were able to sell their produce that they would grow in their gardens 
and they would sell those produce and the money that they received, they could buy additional cloth in textile markets. And you had textile markets throughout the Caribbean region. But there was also a group of women who turned to their environment and they learned about the trees, indigenous plants from the indigenous people, from the Tainas. And so they learned about these plants and they took the knowledge of these plants and they built on it. And so those who brought the idea of bark cloth used that idea to expand on this knowledge. Your research focuses on the intersections of race, gender, and clothing. Could you explain the role of lace bark in the lives of enslaved women, as well as the significance of the lace bark bonnet? Yeah, thank you. It was really, really important because lace bark production was gendered female. And this was a way for women to create a space for themselves within the this harsh climate of colonialism and, and slavery. And what we end up seeing was that this was also a way for slave women to obtain some finances of their own. The cultural significance to is not just about trade and, and commerce, which was very important, but on another level, in that if you think about the significance of lace, and the symbolism behind lace. If you look at the European context, uh, lace was considered to be the fabric of the elite. It was also considered to be the fabric or the textile of the genteel. A woman who wears lace is said to be refined and ladylike and so forth. And here we're talking about a period where it was thought that black women could not really be refined by the nature of their skin color. Uh? And so for women who engaged in this, and who wore lace spark, all right, black women who wore lace spark, in a way it was a form of resistance. It was resisting that colonial uh, mentality that, look, you know what, black women cannot be refined. And here these women are saying, look, look at me, I'm wearing lace. I can be just as refined and just as beautiful as the white woman can be. Yeah? So, so that part of it is really, really important. It's about are making a statement. It's about reclaiming that femininity that many of them were denied. And lace was a way to say, look, we can be refined. And for black women, it was also a way to elevate themselves within the society. And what's fascinating about it, Anne, is that it's washable, it's dyeable, it's stitchable, it's durable, it's manual. I mean, it you can use it in so many ways which also made it very appealing to seamstresses and tailors. But this was an industry, a lace bark industry, that was dominated by black women, controlled by black women. And the industry became so well known. Now, this was an informal industry, because eh? it was not officially recognized by the colonial state, but became so recognized in another way to the point where there were lace spark objects that were presented, for example, in the 17th century. There was a lace spark cravat that was presented to the king, uh, Charles II. In 1851, it said that Queen Victoria was presented with an entire dress made from lace spark. And so all of these things sort of gave some credibility and some acknowledgement to this lace spark industry. So I've given you a lot about the history of lace spark. What we end up seeing, though, is that the bonnet is a fine example of black women's ingenuity and creativity, their ability to um, play with fashion and to improvise. And so what we do know is that because, again, many uh, black women, many enslaved people and even um, peasants uh, did not have access to manufactured lace, but they use lace spark to make these wonderful garments, these beautiful Victorian fashions. And they knew this because they, they saw what European women were wearing and lower class women emulated these fashions. They copied them. And so this bonnet is a fine example of using lace spark and substances from the environment to create what I call this Creole dress and this Jamaicanization of a Victorian outfit. That's amazing. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us today. My pleasure and thanking you for having me. You have been listening to Dr. Steve Buckridge of Grand Valley State University on the Lace Bark Bonnet.
For more on him and this fascinating object, please visit craftingcommunities.net. Hello, this is Natalie Lavetri, and I'm pleased to welcome Willow Rector to the podcast. Willow is a Manitoba Treaty One multimedia artist. Willow's art practice is influenced by both her study and teaching of English literature at the university level. It engages a range of artistic practices, including digital photography, botanical drawing, and hand embroidery. Her work has been featured both in solo exhibitions in Manitoba and the Yukon, and in group exhibitions across Canada. Willow is currently contributing to Swarm, an artist-researcher collective whose members are exploring honeybee ecocultures through art making. And today we will be speaking about hand embroidery and also about her project Unravel. Hello Willow and thank you for speaking with me today. Good afternoon. Thank you for speaking with me. This is wonderful. Willow, our podcast is very interested in how contemporary artists make use of and perhaps also reinvent art and craft practices that were important to 19th century culture. To get us started, can you introduce our listeners to hand embroidery and the tools and methods of hand embroidery? Certainly. So hand embroidery is an ancient practice. It certainly goes back to BCE times, and no doubt before, it was a way of not only establishing styles of ornamentation, but establishing styles of ornamentation as language, as communication. So hand embroidery in a great many ways across history is a very, very beautiful, but very freighted form of communication. So, you know, different cultures over different times develop different techniques for different reasons. Hand embroidery, for those who don't know, is a very analog process. So it's very different than our, our digital culture and our online culture at the moment. For some folks, I think that might be challenging, but for me, I find it really refreshing, actually. Uh, hand embroidery is a very meditative process, in fact. And of late, there's been a lot of studies in regards to psychological disciplines about how hand embroidery, as well as beating, lower cortisol levels, actually. And a lot of these studies, interestingly enough, came about in the context of inmate studies and inmate culture and how to give folks who were literally incarcerated a way to express and also a way to relax the mind and relax the body and heal. Why I mention that is, is because unlike our digital culture, which is largely in the mind through your vision, hand embroidery is in the body. It exercises your, your vision, obviously, but it's very tactile. It's all about what you feel through your hands, what you feel through your fingers, what you feel in your body as you are making the motion literally thousands of times over and over again. It's very quiet. If you hear it at all, it's just a very shh of the thread going through the cloth. It's really, really calming. So that's very different for us, especially at this time when we are really sped up a lot. A lot of emphasis is upon efficiency and technological speed. And that can be stressful. So hand embroidery in its own way is, for me, an antidote to all of that. And, you know, you don't need a lot of stuff. It's, of course, possible to accumulate a lot of stuff, but technically, you don't need it. You need a needle, a fabric, a thread. That's pretty much it. Scissors are great. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you for that explanation. And thank you also for bringing us into this bodily awareness of embroidery that usually we kind of see these textiles and we, we only think about the finished process. We don't actually think think about the physical demands on the maker. Can I ask you to speak a little bit or describe the project Unravel? Certainly. So Unravel is a hand embroidered beekeeping suit. So if you've ever um, worn a beekeeping suit or seen pictures of one, you know that it's uh, usually a white canvas, cotton canvas kind of suit that covers the whole body uh, for the obvious reason that its general function is to protect against bee stings while beekeepers are tending hives. It usually has a netted sort of helmet 
situation. Sometimes it's attached to the suit with a zipper. Sometimes it's a separate hat with a 360 degree veil all around it. There are also leather gauntlet style gloves that go from the tip of your fingers to just below your elbow. So that's a lot of canvas. My particular bee suit is just over six feet tall. The concept behind it was to start to understand for myself a little bit about the relationship between humans and bees. Because as I just mentioned, the, the actual utilitarian function of the suit is to enable a human to interact with bees, care for bees. So what does that look like? And what's involved with that? I started thinking about how relationship, and I guess this goes back to my previous comments on the physicality of embroidery, but what's the physical relationship between humans and bees? How are we alike? How are we different? How do we interact with one another? Sometimes it could be understood that the act of tending hive is a commercial or economically driven activity where the resources of the hive, namely the honey, are being taken away uh, for human use, human consumption. And that's certainly part of it. Beekeeping is absolutely a business. But what other kinds of relationships are there? What would it look like if a human was like a worker bee? If they were making contribution to a hive culture as opposed to sort of marauding a hive culture? One of the things that's happened in ecologies in Western cultures altogether in the last 150 years or so is objectification, is a distancing from Western cultures to the land, to animals and insects and plants that exist on the land with us. And so it was very important to me to start to try to express this in a visual medium. For that reason, the bee suit has a number of different embroideries on it in various locations on the body. So for example, the beekeeping gloves, the gauntlet style gloves that I described, actually have a, a needle felted embroidery of a bee arm and a bee hand that overlaps exactly the contours of the human arm and human hand. So when you put it on, it's like, okay, so this would be what it would feel like, maybe, to be a bee. And then also, as I started working on this project, it became clear to me that there is another player in this relationship and in conversation, which were pollinator plants. Because, of course, bees have relation, and a very intimate one, with pollinator plants. And there's been a great stress on bee ecocultures, in part because of a depletion of pollinator plants. So there's been a lot of urban encroachment on areas that had previously been wild, where there were plants that we normally look at and call weeds, but for bees are very important. You know, there's been all kinds of pesticide use. There's been a number of things. So one of the things that I started to integrate into the embroideries of the bee suit were various pollinator plants. For example, in the front left, I have an embroidery of a goldenrod plant, which for those who don't know, is it's quite tall. It's a stalk-like plant in nature, and it's usually bright yellow, and its flowers don't really have petals. They're more like little knobs, and they exist in clusters. One of the things that the goldenrod plant does is it's a filter. I embroidered a picture of a goldenrod plant on a piece of fabric that was shaped like a human lung. And so there's an outline of a very pale, fleshy pink lung with a goldenrod in the middle. And it's placed on the suit in the location that a lung would be in the human body. So trying to integrate plant bodies and plant functionality with human bodies and bee bodies with the overall goal of basically giving us a way to speak about these relationships, which are complex, very complex. So it's been a fulfilling project. It's ongoing. Making a six-foot embroidery, it's, it's time-consuming by hand, I will admit this. So it will continue to evolve over time. For sure. I was able to see images of this work in process, and we will be able to link our listeners to some of the images of Unravel in development. 
Looking at the embroidery and the design of the embroidery, especially on that goldenrod plant that you mentioned, also the flower, I believe, that you have on the other side, to me, they seem reminiscent of 19th century botanical illustrations. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little about your process in designing these pieces? Were you inspired by a certain aesthetic? Yeah. Yes, they are as botanically correct as I can make them. And I am the first person to admit that I am not a brilliant draftswoman. That's just not my ball of wax. I have studied it for uh, seriously more than a decade now. And sometimes we're good at some things and not so good at others. But yes, the botanical style of these renderings actually was inspired by another body of work that I had ongoing just prior and also concurrently with Unravel. I was fortunate enough to spend some time in the Wynn Herbarium at the University of Manitoba. And for those who don't know, a herbarium is a collection of dried plant samples. And the Wynn Herbarium at the University of Manitoba is one of the oldest and most extensive collections of Western flora in Canada. When you see a plant sample preserved in the herbarium, it's done to particular scientific standards. They're trying to absolutely maintain accuracy of the plant at all times. Uh, so I had opportunity to study that and to do some work in regards to that. Well, they are very beautiful as our listeners will come to see. Moving towards more of the technical aspects, what techniques do you use in Unravel? And are these more traditional techniques or where do these come from? There's a few different kinds of techniques on those embroideries, and they are fairly traditional. For example, the goldenrod we're speaking of, the stem of it was composed with something called long and short, which for those who don't know, is what it sounds like. It's longer stitches integrated with shorter stitches. You make one or two long ones, then you make a couple of short ones. The reason why one does it this way is because it assists you with creating dimensionality. So if you're trying to make something look round, for example, so on the stem, I wanted it to look round, but also it assists you when you're trying to convey light. So light and shadow patterns. Like when I'm making these embroideries, I typically have 15 or 20 different needles running at the same time with different colors on them. Depending on what your light pattern is, you're making either longer stitches or shorter stitches to create highlights and shadows. The actual little knobby-like flowers were made with French knots, which is a particular embroidery stitch. And they are little wee tiny knots, thousands of them, that you tie over and over and over again. I love French knots because they, they're just so textural. And also they create dimensionality. So long and short stitches is flat, so it tends to recede. Whereas something like French knots is, is definitely dimensional, so it's going to reach out to you. Willow, what are your hopes for Unravel? What would you like people who view this piece to come away with? Well, I think my hopes for Unravel are completion. <laughs> One of the difficulties was we were to have an exhibition at the University of Winnipeg Gallery 1CO3. And of course, that was wonderful. And we did have an online exhibition. But one of the challenges I feel for textile artists as well as other media craft artists is a lot of the restrictions and difficulties that came up around COVID. A lot of things were pushed online due to necessity, of course. And that created technical questions for me because Unravel is a work that's meant to be experienced. I mean, for real. I would really like people to be able to walk up to this thing, to see all sides of it, and to be able to put the gloves on. In due course, there will be a beekeeping. A helmet that will be beaded in a pattern that shows the ways in which bees see, because the bee color spectrum is not our color spectrum. Bees see in ultraviolet color spectrums. So these are the things that digital rendering, it, I mean, it can be done to be sure. You take pictures of it, you can put that online. But I, I honestly feel it's a very different experience than having it placed on your own body, having your hands in those gloves, 
being able to look through a mesh of glass and see something completely different. So my hope is, is that one day, when all the circumstances align, that that will be possible. Because I think that generally speaking, the more that we can understand and experience cultures and lives that are different from ours, whether those are human cultures and human lives or insect cultures, insect lives, animal cultures, animal lives, plant cultures, plant lives, the richer we all are, the more meaningful these things become. Having people get the opportunity to experience that would be wonderful. Yes, I agree. It would be wonderful. And I can't wait. And hopefully in the interim, listeners listening to you speak about it, they can gain a little bit more of that access that maybe they wouldn't otherwise only seen an image online. Willow, thank you for exploring hand embroidery with us today, and also for drawing our attention back to the connection between humans and the natural world through your work, Unravel. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. This has been wonderful, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak about this work. Thank you so much. I'll echo Natalie's thanks to Willow. A warm thank you also to Kate Flint and Steve Buckridge for making time to talk with us and for all that they very generously shared. And thank you for listening. Please visit our website to explore links to some resources related to this episode's topics, including links to images of works of art described by our guests. We invite you to stay in touch by following us on Twitter at CraftyVictorian and by visiting our website, craftingcommunities.net. Victorian Samplings was recorded and produced on the territory of the Lekwungen and Sanchothan-speaking communities of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples, and on Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji-Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Thank you to my co-creators, Anne Hung, Jesse Cron, Natalie Lovetri, and Lucy Von Schilling for their contributions to this episode. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project, which is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. This project is a collaboration between Andrea Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. Thank you for listening. Please recommend us to a friend and tune in again soon.